0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Lainey, and I'm here with Duanna, and welcome to the very first episode of our new podcast,
2: which... We don't have a name for it yet, but it will be weekly. It's true. We don't have a name, but we have a topic. We're rock solid on the topic, right? And the topic is? Well, you and I are always fascinated by work. Work. Uh, Why it's kind of fun. Why it's a bit of a misnomer when people are like, oh, why are you working so hard? And why it's been disparaged. I think I
1: wrote earlier this week or maybe last week that work the word has been a dirty has become a dirty word and i'm 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 trying to reclaim it i'm trying to like make it more sexy i love the word work
2: but of course we're talking about work in the celebrity sense in the celebrity gossip sense let's be honest uh if you work as an actor a model a writer a singer it's a little more fun than insurance uh so <laughs> that's what we're talking about. That's sort of what this podcast is about, is about the casting, the behind-the-scenes machinations, the, uh, the career plans of the people that we love to talk about, um, and, you know, just straight-up dirt about how a blind item, say, affects your work.
1: Well, and that's just it. I think that the most interesting aspects of gossip relating to the most interesting people we gossip about is how they're managing their work, their career. Part of the reason, I think, why we're so fascinated by someone like Taylor Swift is because behind the scenes, this is somebody who puts a lot of work and strategy and manipulation and thought into every tweet, every outfit, every hairstyle, every, you know, oh my gosh, look. But it's not being called work by her either deliberately or not deliberately, and this is, to me, what is, what keeps me coming back to gossip. It's the fascination with
2: how these people manage their work. And because, you know, when, yeah, when people are saying, oh, you work too hard, they're not talking about people for whom the outfits and the boyfriends and the scandals are actually all part of the job. So, shall we start off? We shall
1: start off. And we'll start off with what happened at Hamilton this weekend. Friday night, a performance of Hamilton, of course, on Broadway in New York City, attended by the, what do you call this guy, President, Vice President-elect? That's right. Mike Pence. Right.
2: So the details, of course, are coming through on Twitter. Uh, Many of them are coming to me from George Takai, not me personally, (laughs) although email me, George Takai. But… The story goes that Mike Pence went to the show. Uh, If you've been to Hamilton, I haven't yet, so soon, Uh, the theater's quite small, and in the middle sits Mike Pence. And the audience, the Broadway goers from all across America and the world, booed him. Like, is this not amazing? This is hilarious to me. They booed him.
1: Well, that they're… I'm going to maybe say something that's going to get me in trouble, but… There are a lot of places where he would walk in and not be recognized, first of all, that the Hamilton audience, I like to believe, is that sophisticated that they would just… Look, look, he looks like a regular white guy. I mean… There's nothing that remarkable about what Mike Pence looks like.
2: You could say that about the entire Donald Trump cabinet.
1: (laughs) I mean, I suppose he must have been accessorized, you know, with… Various kinds of people that are… Accessorized with
2: Secret Service? That's correct.
1: (laughs) But I just feel like, you know, if you go into a regular cineplex for a screening of whatever movie, I'm not going to like make fun of certain movies and whatever, but I'm not sure that people would have looked up from their popcorn.
2: So first he goes and sits down and he is booed by the audience, right? And uh, then there are… and I actually have to sort of… Find the, the sequence of events here, but if you have cared at all about Hamilton, you know my favorite line that I made into Lainey's favorite line, which is "Immigrants, we, we get, get the, the job, job done." done. <laughs> it's amazing. It's the entire ethos of the show. Yassick is about to kill himself. Yassick's an immigrant too, but uh, at that line, there was a standing ovation. Uh, in fact, the the basically, I think they kind of had to stop the show and regroup. Uh, and then there were other uh, lines by uh, King George. One of them is, do you know how hard it is to lead? That also got a <laughs> lot of rabble going from the audience. And then, and this is where it gets even more hilarious, then there was a, a message read by uh, Aaron Burr, uh, and I will look up the, the new actor who is playing Aaron Burr, and it reads… Yeah, they, and just in in the meantime, in the background,
1: new Aaron Burr because the original cast departed in July-ish, around about, and Aaron Burr was Davy Diggs, right?
2: No, Aaron Burr was oh, oh. played by Leslie Odom oh, Jr. okay, right, okay. And yeah, as, as the contracts expire, different, uh, uh, different actors yeah. have left and are being pay- played by new roles. Brandon Dixon uh, is now playing Aaron Burr, and he said… We have a message for you, sir. We hope that you will hear us out. So this is what he said in, in part, and again, it's been arguably, you know, forgive for a little transposition as it gets sent through Twitter and so forth. We, sir, are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us, our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights but we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. All of us. Uh, And I actually have seen a part uh, of this that was not included in the part that I'm reading here that says, you know, we truly do welcome you to the show and we hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, And before he read the statement, he said, uh, there's nothing here to boo, ladies and gentlemen, because everybody was uh, booing, I guess, when it became a apparent that they were going to do more than just a regular curtain call. Yeah. Uh, and he said, we're all here sharing stories of love. So this is phenomenal. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. Unusual. Um, it's not unheard of. There, you know, there have been stories a couple of years ago, somebody on Broadway, I want to say Patti LuPone, stopped a show to yell at somebody who was yes. texting. Like, Oh,
1: this happens all the time? I think Daniel Craig has done it. Um he was doing a play with Hugh Jackman, and a cell phone went off. But you know, as I've written in the column, you have um, forced Hamilton onto me in a way that I feel is very aggressive. Um, so I am not—I <laughs> am not a Hamilton expert, though I do know it. Like more and more now. I obviously haven't been yet. Uh, that is a story that I can't get into right now. It I was would break ask my heart. We were going to tell the people the story. I don't know if I can do it. Like, I actually might cry. Anyway, but um, having said that, I'm also not a theater junkie like you. So, given my lack of knowledge about all of these things… My first question was, when do… Like, at what point does the cast find out that this is the VIP in the audience that night? Because we know every night there's a celebrity in the Hamilton crowd, right? We've seen it on Twitter. Beyonce comes, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda writes a whole thing about all the reaction and Jonathan Groff, right? Wasn't it Jonathan Groff? Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. So, if you don't know the story, by the way, look it up. Beyonce, Jonathan Groff, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Miranda. Anyway, so… At what point do they find out this particular VIP would have been in the audience? Is it during the performance or right before? And then when do they have time to craft
2: that statement? Okay, so excellent question about when we find out celebrities are going to be there. You know, I think it varies, schedules You change. just said we, as if you're part of the cast of Hamilton, but okay, continue. <laughs> I mean, I assume it's a matter of time. Um, call
1: me. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, when do they find
2: out? How is it drafted? Who drafts it? Like, uh, well, I mean, again, this is kind of unprecedented, right? Like you're saying, how is it drafted? As though it happens all the time, but in this case, there's a New York Times article that says that uh, Lin Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kail, who's the director, and their lead producer Jeffrey Seller's were sort of like, "What do we do? How do we deal with this?" And so they decided to write a statement, um, and they sort of cast had input. Lin Manuel Miranda wrote it, of course, because he writes everything. Um, and, you know, they sort of ha- decided how to address it and what to do because they were talking about how the cast was crushed at, at the day after the election as we all were crushed. But the whole point of the show is about being an immigrant in America, how America is for everyone, how anybody can come to make your way here. And of course, in case you've been living under a rock, all of the parts of the white men of history are played, and women of history, I should say, are played by people of color, uh, which is an amazing continuum of Hamilton that exists in the Chicago show, in the eventual touring shows. Uh, it's happening across the board. So it's extremely, extremely relevant. So they sort of debated what to do, and they decided they would wait to make this statement until after the show, until the performance had been done. Okay, so here's, here's the thing.
1: Lin-Manuel Miranda is not every day at Hamilton anymore. He's moved on. That's right. So at some point, they get the call either before Mike Pence arrives or during the performance. They call up Lynn and they're like, yo, the president-elect Mike Pence is in the audience. So he essentially vice has… Vice president-elect. Or sorry, the Please vice God, president. God,
2: until Trump gets impeached and then we'll deal that's, with that.
1: That's right. And so f- is it like in that two-hour stretch, the performance is what? About two, two and a half hours? In that two-hour stretch… He is wherever he is, in L.A. or uh, somewhere else in New York. Uptown. Uptown, yeah. wherever. And he's like, being a writer, he's like, ah, now I got to, fact- I get this right. I have to get this
2: right, every single word. Yeah, based on the fact that they talked about who all was involved and the cast got to weigh in, I'm going to say they knew, you know, halfway through the day, right? Okay. I'm going to say they probably knew around, you know, whatever, around like, call time sort of for 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, because, you know, until then, can you do with the social… the security, whatever, whatever, the Secret Service. Um So I'm going to say they had a few hours. And that can really charge a performance, too. If you know someone is in the audience, sometimes it's Beyonce, sometimes <laughs> it's the most contentious vice president-elect in certainly our lifetimes, yeah. all the cast's lifetime, I would assume. So… Yeah, it's… that's an incredibly shocking thing to have happened. I would love to hear from people who are lucky enough to have seen the show more than once and would wonder how Saturday's performance compared to other ones, you know? Yeah. Did it have some of that electricity? The other thing is that this is what's so incredible about this show. You talked about, you know, some of the original cast, some of those names that we associate with those parts have moved on, right? Yeah. A lot of the cast is new relative to everybody that you saw on the Tonys, and yet they are part of such an incredible, like, goosebump-giving moment One in of the history. seminal moments in the, in the history of the show now. Of the show and of, yeah. like, kind of our, our political dialogue, but also uh, we're sitting in Toronto having this conversation, but it goes without saying, but sometimes it does need to be said, the, the things that happen there affect us here and are just as, as important and devastating to us here. All this to say, it's… the amazing part of this show is that you will continue to be part of the dialogue. They are continued to be part of the dialogue, even if you're not the person who originated the role on the cast recording.
1: So, was there ever any other choice, though? Knowing, let's say that they were given a heads up by afternoon that he was going to be there. This was the only thing to do. It would be impossible to end the performance and let him go away
2: without having pulled that move, yes? Impossible. It is impossible because of what the show means. It's impossible because of the ethos of all the people involved. My actual favorite line in Hamilton is, I'd rather be divisive than indecisive. This is the one to me that is my touchstone for everything. Commit to something and do it. If you don't commit, if you only have your shoulda, coulda, wouldas, um, then what's the point? Yes, this was the only thing to do. And it's empowering for all of us. I heard this great expression the other day. It's a French expression. You can translate it for me because your French is so much better than mine. Uh, But the English translation is the wit of the staircase, meaning the thing that you think of on the stairs when you should have said it upstairs when you're having the fight. Yeah. Um, And… Like, that's most of us. Most of us have the wit of the staircase. Having the opportunity to say the thing in the moment to Mike Pence is fantastic. Now, to be fair,
1: let's then provide the Mike Pence reaction or the Mike Pence reaction via President-elect Donald Trump, who tweeted afterwards, our wonderful future VP, Mike F- Mike Pence, was harassed last night at the theater by the cast of Hamilton. Cameras blazing. This should not happen, exclamation point. Followed by, the theater must always be a safe and special place. The cast of Hamilton was very rude last night to a very good man, Mike Pence. Apologize, exclamation point. So, you know, without going into how Donald Trump, his interpretation of this is so very wrong, let's talk about the theater being a place that is safe and special. And whether or not, of course it was, but defend how that was upheld by that statement and their decision. Can we first
2: take a sidebar for cameras blazing? What do we feel like (laughs) that means? Um, Yeah, I love the idea of the theater as a safe space. I think the theater does all kinds of incredible things for marginalized people. If you remember, the night before the Tony Mm -hmm. Awards were the, the attacks at Pulse nightclub. Uh, and that is so clearly linked to this community. They have done all kinds of things to raise funds for it. Um, Is this a place where it's a safe space for people? Yeah, because part of the point of theater or any art is to say the things for the people who can't, is to have the conversations that you are having around your dining room table but don't feel like you can say to people in power. They basically are superheroes. They had a direct audience with Mike Pence, who is one of the arbiters of what seems like terror and despair, and they said the thing to him in the moment. They're superheroes. They are protecting the people who cannot say those things and who will be affected by those things. How you can see that as anything other than a safe space is beyond me. Because, you know, who's not in any danger of, of being unsafe? I had to restrain several (laughs) profanities from coming out there. Um, A, you know, a wealthy white politician with security employed to be around him at this time.
1: What do you say… I mean, listen, I'm just playing devil's advocate to make sure we get all sides. Yeah, let's do it. What do you say to the people that the play, the art, the songs, the words, the lyrics, they should speak for themselves… Um, And that is the point of art, it is there for interpretation during the course of the show and so that it's unnecessary to come out after the show during a curtain call to, you know, make an emphatic statement that's underlined, bolded, italicized when, you know, essentially what's there is there. Okay, so… And of course, you know where I'm coming from. I'm just giving you, this is what people would… this is what alt writers would say, I
2: wonder. Well, so here's the thing. So point the first, as actors would love us to know, like, ironically, you have me in the place of defending uh, social media celebrities, but as they would have us know, they are performers, they're actors. It's not like you can say, oh, well, you're actors, so you're not allowed to have opinions yourselves or writers or directors or whatever. They can still react as people, first of all. But second of all, this is what's so incredible about this show in particular, The show that is about things that happened as America was being created that is incredibly relevant these, you know, hundreds of years later is incredibly relevant this month in a way that it wasn't last month. There are freedoms that are being infringed upon or are about to be infringed upon. This is incredibly relevant. If you can't show how art reflects life, What are you doing doing it? It's the same thing as history class, as when that teacher that you like is like, and do you see how the Salem witch trials could be like McCarthyism? And you're like, oh my God, he's amazing. He makes it come to life. This is what we're doing. This is why we are in these arts. Like numbers can speak for themselves and still need people to interpret them. So on the contrary, I think this is the greatest form of this happening. Well, I think that that's important
1: here, though, is that One of the things that has come out after this um, election has been clearly the sides don't listen to each other, right? Totally. So, I feel like it's important at least to
2: know what questions each side is asking. A hundred percent. What becomes uh, a challenge is that there are, you know, maybe ill-thought-out arguments. So, you know what's happening now? Why? The hashtag boycott Hamilton. Oh god. Is happening on Twitter. Is it going to be illegal to go to Hamilton? Oh, listen, that'll make it even like
1: a, a cool a show that's already a pop culture moment in and of itself is going to be even more so if that's the case. Like this is just added to the whatever that word is, the
2: uh, Zeitgeist. mystique or the, the yes of, of Hamilton. You know it doesn't have this amount of mystique? What? Harry Potter and the Cursed Child.
1: It won an award Mm -hmm. last week at the Evening Standard Theatre Awards, uh, but you're right. It kind of lost all momentum after, what, a month or two? It opened. People were really excited. We were excited. We read the book. We did a podcast. And then, like, Hamilton seemed self-generating, you know. It opened and then all of a sudden it was like a tidal wave, you know. All these celebrities started showing up. Lim manuel Miranda became like a a lightning rod on Twitter. Then the president. Then he was invited how many times to the White House to perform it. And then all this happened. And then on and on and on. And now, and now it's gotten a third, fourth, fifth
2: life. Right. Cursed child? No. Nothing. Nothing. And maybe part of that is because there hasn't really been any controversy around anything to do with the you know, with the wizarding universe, right?
1: Or your biggest complaint about it, that it concluded with a no-change conclusion.
2: Right. We're back to the beginning.
1: That's right. It didn't leave us with any impact. So it actually can exist independently without affecting all the other parts of the things that we know. Therefore,
2: it doesn't matter. But that's the worst part. You're asking me about if art should speak for itself, but art should stay with you. It should resonate with you and I don't think anybody is thinking about it beyond, you know, what we chatted about back in
1: July. Well, let's get into the J.K. Rowling thing because this is also the weekend that Fantastic Beasts premieres. It's going to open pretty big. Um, So as of this recording, I have not seen it. You have? I'm going in a matter of hours. Okay. So I have not seen it. I'm going to see it with the 3D glasses on in like a regular theater, not like a industry screening theater. So, kind of excited. Not kind of. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Now, this is a new franchise. They say there's going to be five. And of which we kind of go into each movie not knowing because there's no book that precedes it.
2: That's right. Although I saw there was like a book that's been a reissued issue of Fantastic Beasts is coming out today or yesterday.
1: But isn't that just a catalog of what the beasts are as opposed to who all these people are? You know, the Colin Farrells, the fucking… Yeah, I assume there are
2: more footnotes for us to be able to reference them or like, you know, photos, whatever, like a terrible movie tie-in. But yeah, it's it's giving a new relevance to this book. And frankly, I
1: don't know if this means that I'm a bad, like, Harry Potter fan, but I never… I don't think I read that Fantastic Beasts book, that textbook. It's essentially what she published was the textbook that Hermione… And company would have used when they were in Hogwarts to study all the like, you know, whatever the Norwegian Ridgeback and all the things. But it's like
2: a pamphlet. It's really thin. If it was a textbook, you would have read it.
1: Well, I I mean, I know there are certain Harry Potter fans who can actually tell you what all these animals are, these beasts are. And
2: I couldn't tell. Don't give a fuck, actually. So there's a lot of excitement though about fantastic beasts. People are in for it, people are excited. This is the first of five.
1: She's writing all of them. So she has gone from novelist to playwright, I guess. Although… Screenwriter. That would be a screenwriter. Well, I mean, the, the Cursed Child play… I don't, she didn't write she herself. She did not write okay, it. Okay, so she did novelist not. to now screenwriter, her
2: first screenplay, mm-hmm. first of five, and… Um, And that's five for sure? They're not going to like punk out on us and give us no, five part one and five part two? The five was the punk because th- it was supposed to be three. Right.
1: And now I guess she's plotted it out and she's decided. So it's kind of the three punked and then five. Right. And then of course a lot of the conversation lately, at least on com, has been around the the casting because it's now confirmed that Johnny Depp has a cameo in the first movie and… um is definitely playing Gellert Grindelwald, who was the best friend and then estranged friend of Dumbledore and ended up being defeated by Dumbledore and losing the Elder Wand to him. See, I know all that bit. Yeah, so this made you really mad. Let's just cut to the chase here. This made a lot of people really mad, the Johnny Depp casting. Right. There was backlash, there was hashtags, there was,
2: you know… So why? So I'm going to… Why does it make you so mad?
1: I don't think that I'm as mad as other people are, but I'll tell you what the general outrage has been, is that J.K. Rowling stands up for things. She stands up for gender equality. She stands up for the rights of women. She stands up for the right for women to be safe. She stands up for believing women. And of course, we all know six months ago, Johnny Depp in his divorce, it was alleged that he beat his wife. It was alleged that he's a violent man. Then he tried to silence her, tried to get people not to believe her, all of that. And so the uh, J.K. Rowling ethos doesn't seem to jive with the Johnny Depp reputation. How about that? Sure. And then whether or not that somehow has contaminated the
2: Potter world. His involvement up to now has been, like we say, kind of scandal-free. Dare we say boring? There's those people, those all the celebrities that we know of because of this show. You know, like there's no, there's Maggie Smith is not courting controversy. Um, (laughs) Rupert Grint has yet to do something really stupid that uh, would bring shame upon the family. Right. Right? It's it doesn't happen. So I think that's part of the surprise is that this is the first time the kind of magical, untouchable franchise, which let's be honest, people want to believe is kind of better than real life, has kind of been tainted. With this kind of thing.
1: I'm more interested in the reaction to her statement because you know, when she finally was asked about it at the premiere um earlier this week or a few days ago, she said she was delighted. She said she was always supportive of him being cast. It wasn't her idea, but when it was brought to her, she was definitely on board. And so when I wrote about it earlier this week, I was like, Well, what the fuck is she supposed to say? Like, you know, she's one deep into a five movie franchise, she still has to write it, the studio has already cast, like she, I mean, as powerful as J.K. Rowling is, she's not a fucking movie studio, studio, Um, so anyway, read the post, it's up there, that's what I said, and I really want to talk about the reaction to that, because there's some people who were like, I get your point, I get that, you know, um, there are other, there are other ways to address it, and she's probably not able to address it honestly, cleanly right now, but hey, Gabrielle Union was able to do it um, and speak up. Against an entire film and Sony Pictures, um, was it Searchlight? Anyway, Sony or Searchlight for the Birth of a Nation. So if Gabrielle Union can do it, why can't JK Rowling do it? And this is what I think is the
2: interesting conversation. So here are some basic answers. Number one, I guarantee you that JK Rowling and Gabrielle Union for that matter have a promotion clause in their contracts, right? It says you must promote this movie, you must say positive to neutral things on any number of Letterman's or… Letterman's, uh, (laughs) by the way, I'm super current with my references. On bears? Yeah, on Jimmy Fallon, uh, you know, on The View, you have to do the rounds and smile about the whole thing. I also am absolutely sure that everyone who was involved with Birth of a Nation, which is what you're referring to with Gabrielle Union was kind of throwing up their hands and had no idea how to deal with the, the Nate Parker controversy. Um, this thing that's happening with Johnny Depp is much smaller in the sense that it is not uh, Eddie Redmayne eating zombie flesh. It is not something that throws into question the entire franchise, uh, the way that movie was based around… Nate Parker. Parker. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, it's not, I don't want to say it's not worth throwing a tantrum over, but there are a lot of things that hang in the balance. And if I can be a bit insidery for a minute, a lot of jobs that hang in the balance. Uh, I would conservatively say that the people who worked on Fantastic Beasts, you know, are in the hundreds of people who physically touched the production somehow to say nothing of marketing people and film people and everybody else. You know, J.K. Rowling now being the head of an empire now has an obligation to keep that empire going. It's a really interesting place to be in. Gabrielle Union, by comparison, only has to keep the Gabrielle Union empire going. It's a lot of pressure. It's It's a hard place to be in. That's exactly what my
1: reaction was when You know, we were talking about this and the emails were coming in and several people referenced the Gabrielle Union example. And the first thing that came into my mind, the first phrase, expression, whatever, was the more you have, the more you have to lose. Hmm. Which is similar to what you're saying here about the J.K. Rowling empire, about all the pieces that are in play. I mean, he was cast in January, they shot in January, and the divorce and all those allegations and you know, the fuckery that that we know of him now happened in May. So in that time, you've got two days of shooting in the can and how many months of post? Only two days of shooting? Well, it's only a cameo in the first movie. Right. So they, you film the cameo in January. So I guess what happens is the cameo sets up to movie two. The script, I think, for movie two is
2: done. Yeah, um, I mean, depending on where they are and what kind of options they have on actors, uh, yeah, you got to do those in fairly quick succession.
1: Yeah, not to mention that the, fa- it, the movie's been cut in post. Like a, from January to May, there's a,
2: a lot of work has been already done. 100%. And it would have been in post, and scoring, and color correction, and all that. That's the right. It's not so easy to go in and lift something out.
1: So that's what I mean. I mean, like, what does, so, so let's say six months later, he's cast, they're moving ahead with the second movie, or sorry, he's cast, they've already color, whatever, scored and color corrected and whatever, and she's asked, hey, Johnny Depp. So if she stands up there and is like, he's a fucking asshole, what a jerk, enough with the scarves, hate him so much, totally beat his wife, poor Amber, what do you do?
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Yeah, uh, this is the thing, you know. It's not the place or the time. Particularly when and this is the gross reality of it. This is the the part that people, you know, depending on who you are, the fans of Joe as you would say don't want to think about, it, don't want to talk about. It. She also has a responsibility to sell the movie, to get people who will buy tickets to go see the movie. Johnny Depp sells tickets. I don't like it. You don't like it. But part of the reason that he is as unscathed as he is after this whole thing is because he's Johnny Depp. He is a huge box office draw. And so people are motivated to protect an investment, right? To protect a a financial reality. If this were you know uh what was that guy who was always like in the news for for being horrific like Scott Berstow or somebody uh there's no there's nobody to there's no money lost there but there are people who could be afraid of offending the huge you know ticket buying public but i don't even think we need to even get it what makes me mad
1: is that why is she being challenged to do this in the first place do you know what i mean she didn't beat her, her wife. Like, she didn't throw a fucking phone. You know, she didn't punch her in the face. But and it's always, repeatedly, women who have to step up and answer for, I'm making little quotes here, answer for the actions of what men have done. It makes me crazy. She's just
2: going along, making her movie franchise. So this is where we come oh. to the, my rage about, you know, we can't have nice things. Does somebody who speaks up about some things have a responsibility to speak up about all things? Right. I'm asking. I don't know. Does it make me unfeminist that I'm trying to justify
1: and defend her when she could have been defending the rights of battered women? I don't, this is what, and then now, should I feel bad about it? Kind of like, should I be feel so torn about it? And. Why am I feeling torn about it when it was fucking again Johnny Depp who threw a goddamn phone at his wife's face? Fuck. He's not feeling torn up about shit. I'll tell you that much. But all of us, we are here arguing with each other and being mad at each other when, again, we didn't fucking punch our wives. I didn't know we were mad at
2: each other. Are we mad? Are we fighting? We,
1: not we, but, like, it is that. It's like, how could you say that, Lainey? Or why are you saying that, J.K. Rowling? Or I'm so mad at you, J.K. Rowling. Oh, you've so, you've so disappointed me, J.K. Rowling. God,
2: it's... Wow. You know, she didn't... But she didn't do anything. No. And, Ugh. in fact has, you know, there's no world in which you could think that she knew any of the things that she knew. So, yeah, no, why is it her problem? But this is the flip side of all this stuff, right? We always want celebrities to stand up for the places we can't stand up, to say the things and do the things that we can't stand up and say and do. It's, it's disappointing when They can't be superheroes when they act in human ways. And I feel like on our blog, though, we ask them to, or we often do. We often
1: either overtly or subtly imply that they should. So I don't know. This is, I mean, this is part of the reason why we do this podcast and part of the reason why we keep having these talks is we, you put yourself on the line and you ask yourself whether or not you are
2: accountable and if you have failed… Yeah. What does the job entail? You know, if tomorrow it turns out that Eddie Redmayne does in fact eat zombie flesh, what obligation does she have to uh, to the disenfranchised who are horrified about this?
1: I mean, those are the small decisions every day that go into critiquing pop culture and talking about the the uh, the decisions that celebrities make is deciding yourself what tone to take in your critique of them. Like… It is definitely the safer way to write a post about Jake Rowling and be like, you suck, you lied, I hate you, you've disappointed me. And yet the nuance behind all of that is, well,
2: maybe she had her hands tied too. Yeah, and I don't know if she lied. I, You know, it's <sighs> there are ways to look at this. But the other thing that's interesting, of course, is that this is a conversation about a woman and her work. Yeah. Right. And you sort of go, well, this is her work and this is the person and I want one to affect the other. Gets even more interesting when there are people who are their work, right? This is kind of the point of the podcast, but, you know, we were talking about the fact that it gets blurrier and blurrier every day, right? People's social media that they have in their own names are part of their brand. It's part of their thing. So then where do the lines get drawn?
1: And… At what point do you use that you and your career and your work being all merged together as an effective tool to keep furthering it? So you have a rant brewing. I don't know if I have a rant brewing. I have a theory that I'm trying… No, it's not a rant. It's actually a theory I'm trying to prove or disprove in that when you are famous now and very effective on social media, do you have to keep trolling… To maintain. Okay, lay it out for us. So a good example would be Chrissy Teigen. So Chrissy Teigen is like pretty awesome on Twitter. She's She's, like the when she gets into fights with people like Pierce Morgan, it's like it's the best.
2: It's the best. I also (laughs) really enjoy when she, uh, you know, agrees with people who say she's a terrible mother because she did whatever. Like she's she'll you know they'll be like, "Where's your baby, Chrissy Teigen?" She's like, "Oh shit, I forgot her. I love her." (laughs)
1: That's right, and so Chrissy Teigen is a model. Yep, started as a model. Also married to John Legend. Together, they're kind of a power couple. Yep, they had their first child, mm-hmm. um, Luna. Luna, and now the all the all the aspects of Chrissy Teigen, like social media, lifestyle, part-time talk show host. I think there was a talk show th- host thing in there. Model. And that all of that is starting to merge together, but most of it is fueled by her social media. And she, the other day, went on the Today Show or something, and part of her Today Show discussion was about judgy moms and mommy shaming. Sure. Because, as you said, she's shamed for it all the time. She went out, people are like, where's your baby? Why aren't you with your baby? And she says, oh my God, I don't know where she is.
2: Fuck. Um, Guess I'm a terrible mom. But
1: isn't that a loop? Like, she keeps tweeting like, hey, I'm going out or hey, I'm doing this, knowing that there are those assholes out there who are inevitably going to be like, Chrissy Teigen, you suck as a mom. Then she gets to fight with them. Well, fuck you or with humor or whatever. Then she gets to go on the talk show to talk about how she's been shamed as a mom and then the next day she comes off the talk show and then she writes another tweet about, oh my God, I just gave Luna her first cigarette. I don't know, whatever. Right. <laughs> Okay, so what is your, what's the question? I wonder if she, the savvy ones, and she is very savvy. Absolutely. The savvy ones kind
2: of semi-troll to their advantage. Okay, so here's my thing about this. I think you can't fake being good at social media. I have, you know, I have a friend who has… Uh, very strong opinions, I will let him express them, uh, come on the show, uh, about who is or isn't good at Twitter or Instagram or whatever. He has a whole metric. Uh, I think you can't fake it. People know when it's fake. People know when it's curated or written by somebody else. So Chrissy Teigen is great at social media because she's authentically great. You can tell it's her. It wouldn't work if it were being written by somebody else and then she was a different person on the talk shows. Yes? Yes. So we can accept that she's being herself on the screen and on your mobile screen. She is who she is. We can further argue that, you know, if she wasn't good or at least engaging, people wouldn't engage with her. Right. Right? So she's building an audience, now that you're saying some of that audience is, you know, people who love to hate, right? Like yeah. en- engaging with the It's the, the social media version of hate watch for right.
1: some, for not us. Right. We clearly enjoy her, but then there's the flip side of like, you know, those people who are constantly judging her can't
2: help but just see what she's tweeted that day. Right. So to me it's a bit of a Mobius strip because if Chrissy Teigen stops tweeting about her life and her kid and whatever, and let's be fair, she's not generally saying that she's smoking her baby up or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) hanging her out a window. Yeah. Um, If she stops saying those things, then she's not being real anymore, right? And so then you're being inauthentic. And I'm sure there are other trolls who would be mad at that. So I don't think she can stop. You're asking, is it to her advantage that they engage with her? Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But I don't think that's the same thing as, you know, artificially cultivating a controversy. Right. makes sense? Yes. See, and that
1: was… that's the theory I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Because I also believe that Chrissy Teigen is that good at social media and that smart. And that while it might be a genuine tweet about Luna's first peas or whatever… She actually also knows, well, those
2: assholes are going to get riled up about this one. I can't wait. Sure, but that's true of anything, right? You do social media because you want people to engage with it. The worst thing on any aspect of social media is not when everybody screams at you. It's when nothing happens, right? The tweet that goes nowhere, the no likes on your Instagram post, that, the snap that doesn't snap. I don't know about Snapchat. Um, (laughs) The point is, you know, you want people to engage with it. As long as you're not weeping and crying about how terrible the people are, what really is the problem? It's an interesting form of content creation. Yes, it is. That
1: is… yeah. I mean, it's self-generated content creation and this is maybe another conversation, another podcast because I'm quite interested in this form of content creation where… Is it organic versus non-organic? What is the percentage of organic versus non-organic content creation? Um,
2: and at a certain point, how much of that can you say is inorganic, i.e., you know, yeah, you're not going to get mommy trolled until you're a mommy, arguably. Um, so, you know, depending on who you're talking to… are it, How far do you draw the line to say, oh, well, they just got knocked up so they could uh, have a baby lifestyle line? There are maybe people we could say that about. Um, Yes. (laughs) I don't think she's one of them. No. As opposed to like a Demi Lovato, for example, and I don't follow Demi Lovato on social media closely, but from what I understand, she has a real habit of saying, hey, here's a thinly veiled comment about everybody I hate who's easily identifiable. Yes, yes. Then… I quit. The next morning… Well, first, (laughs) And then the next morning she's like, I'm just trying to be me, followed by… I quit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That to me is a lot more inauthentic. It. She knows how it works. She knows how the system works. I'm sure she has hundreds of thousands of followers who sort of wash around in her wake. But I think that feels a lot less authentic even if it's like, oh, I'm the one who talks too much because we've seen the pattern so many times.
1: Well, here's a hard turn, kind of, maybe, talking about judgy
2: moms and moms who are judged. Lorelai Gilmore. Oh, I really like that you made that turn. That's (laughs) that's entertaining to me.
1: Lorelai Gilmore, Rory Gilmore, Emily Gilmore will return. What is the date today? So, a week, right? Friday. Friday is the drop. That's right. The four-episode, four-mini-movie? Four Uh, four 90-minute episodes, whatever you want to call that. Yes. Okay, so, um, I… I am um, on season three, episode 15. What's happened?
2: You're halfway through senior year with yeah. Rory at Chilton.
1: Rory and Paris have broken up. Mm-hmm. This is my great heartbreak of season three. They don't trust each other. They're mad at each other. And
2: uh student government is in crisis. Okay. So I'm going to just slow you down for a second. So the whole thing, watch Gilmore Girls, uh, whatever, I'll get to it when I when I will. This <laughs> is a conversation that we've had over the years that other readers have entreated you to watch the For show. like 10 years. Right. Yes. What did you think the show was and how have you been proven right or wrong now that you're watching it? I don't know if I had any thoughts of what the show was. Then why didn't you want to watch it?
1: I just, it didn't grab me. Like, I just, you know, I, I, it wasn't, here, I didn't, I didn't think it was about high school, even though there there was a teenager, and you know I will probably watch every and any high school movie or TV show, so it wasn't enough about high school to get me interested. And now I know that there's a lot of high school in it. Not enough, actually, for my liking, but, um, so I, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I'm not sure how my expectations have been subverted, although I will say that one of the strongest elements about the show that maybe I do wish I appreciated and knew more about before is that thread of becoming your mother is inevitable.
2: (laughs) The show is about mothers and daughters beyond… Anything else, right? It's There's other family members, there's friends, there's Mm -hmm. men, whatever, but the show is about mothers and daughters. Um, To pat myself on the back, when we were watching the the US election happening, uh, I pointed out to you that, you know, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton are always together, always a unit, much more than Hillary and Bill even. Um, There's those huge bonds. It's a fascinating, fascinating exploration. As soon as you pointed that
1: out, it was all I could see. Anytime Hillary was anywhere with Chelsea, it was
2: like my immediate focus was on the two of them. So we can understand some of the bonds that happen in Gilmore Girls, and there are other ways in which the show, which people love to talk about as being, you know, kind of fantasy or or lighthearted or whatever, seems to me to be incredibly realistic. Uh, there are things that arguably are dramatic or dramatized for dramatic purposes that, you know, are very real life to me. Are you going to get finished the show in time for…
1: I don't think so. I I mean, I'm not going to finish the rest of season three and four and five and six and seven, which seven you tell me I don't even need to do, right? So There's a
2: real debate about this. Okay. And… But I feel as though… You are my Gilmore Girls coach, so (laughs) I will do what you… Well, what do you, so what, what's your plan? Are you My plan s- is to do it at Christmas. To stay spoiler free until yeah. Christmas and then watch them then. Well,
1: I mean, listen, I've managed to stay spoiler free and the show has been like defunct for how long. Yeah. I don't actually know who Rory ends up with at the end of the show or like I keep… And listen, I have managed every day I text you with a revelation or a what? Why is Dean still on the show? I haven't, like, I actually don't know what happens. Please tell me he dies. No, he can't die because I just saw him on the fucking cover of Entertainment Weekly. Ugh. So are you telling me that Dean sticks around for all these fucking seasons that I- he has to be on the
2: cover of the magazine? Paris is not on the cover Have of we Entertainment Weekly. Have we talked about how, I haven't talked for like the last minute. You're making <laughs> all kinds of assumptions and jumping all over the place. Well, I'm proving to you that I can
1: remain spoiler free
2: but there's a there's a zeitgeist there it is again uh about the show that there wasn't for the 10 years while you were ignoring it. So, you know, let's put a pin in that. Knowing what you know now about the show, about what it is, and I'm it's you're in a really interesting place because uh I I heard uh I really enjoy listening to the Gilmore guys, Demi, Kevin come on the show. Um talk about the show and they they talked about how Season three is almost the end of act one of the show and, uh, and the beginning… and is also the beginning of act two. That maybe actually act two begins during the episode in season three where they go to Yale, which is really interesting to me. So let me just… Okay. Now I can see.
1: Now I can see. Because I wrote to you. Right after that episode, that was a spectacular episode. The you Yale write to ep- me after every episode. Fine, but what I wrote to you after the Yale episode was the reason I enjoyed it so much was because that is the moment that Lorelai realized, or is beginning to realize, that her dreams and Rory's dreams might be different,
2: or even separate. So we know what we know. You are watching. You're compelled to keep watching. We'll discuss season seven. And of course, you've seen the promos and and whatnot for the Gilmore Girls reunion and the trailers and things. You've seen the shots at very least. We run the articles on the site. I we know we run the articles. I don't look at the videos. It, you've seen the pictures. I've seen the pictures, and then Emily watches the videos. And yeah, everybody but. is as as beautiful as they were. They have those faces, um, you know. Lauren Graham releases a book on. November 29th, yeah, her, yeah. her kind of book of essays, like every uh, actress's book of essays that yes. has been coming out this year. Uh, but I'm excited about it. Uh, and Lauren Graham, of course, has written a novel that is so not…
1: Which you reviewed on Lady Gossip.: Which
2: I did, which I liked, which is not Gilmore-esque. She's a real writer. The reasons why she wrote it are really interesting, but we'll get there in a minute. What are your thoughts about this cast? Uh, Lauren Graham has had other roles maybe none so iconic as Lorelei. Uh, Alexis Bledel and Kelly Bishop have not had so many roles. Kelly Bishop, of course, was in Bunheads, uh, which is a whole other conversation. I'll get her onto Bunheads someday, maybe. Um, what are our thoughts? Do we feel like, you know, I often think like, oh, there's a revival. Well, they were all kind of available. Uh, yeah. How do we feel about this? Is this good? What do we hope for their
1: careers? I have to tell you that Rory, so Alexis Bledel, is the least interesting point of, um, like, uh, the least interesting person to me on the show. And maybe that's because it's only act one and Rory is still only 17 or 18 right now, but I don't care about Rory. The only thing, like, I mean, I only care about Rory as Lorelai's daughter and as Emily's granddaughter. It is actually amazing to me, but probably very, um, almost it makes sense that two such powerful opinionated women produced a dud. Like, it almost feels like there was a theory that you said about children a long time ago about, like, um, whether or not there's a finite amount of special and then it has to peter out along the line. Do you remember us talking about this? I know what we were talking about, yeah. I can't remember what it was in relation to. And I wonder whether or not, like, Rory is the rest period for that gene pool. Like, you have a great Emily, you have, like, a fascinating Lorelai who can be the worst, but so can Emily. And then the gene pool was like, fuck, you know what? Honestly, we're tired? And, like, just give us a break on Rory. We're just going to be a dullard over here. And then the next, when Rory's kid comes along, then we'll, like, spark again.
2: What makes you think Rory is a dud? What are the qualities that say dud?
1: On the superficial, on the superficial most, like the most superficial, even her voice is duddy. Like even the way she speaks right now. Does her voice change over the show? Because she actually just speaks like she's 12. Okay. Uh, like even her voice is duddy to me. Rory just, r- things happen around Rory I find.
2: Are you guys as excited as I am?
1: <laughs> Great. Okay, I hope if this is just act 1 and I'm I'm coming to the end of act 1 then I'm really
2: excited. But, you know, I think you have an interesting point because you're talking about Rory, but are you also talking about Alexis Bledel, who, you know, did some some movies? You know, was in… Uh, uh, Sisterhood that, of the Traveling Pants. Yeah, and that one episode of Mad Men and met and married Vincent Cartiser or uh, Pete Campbell had his baby in secret. You know, it, is, is that what it is? Is that all we need from her? Is she Rory Gilmore for life? I don't know. I mean, I've only lived with
1: Rory Gilmore for about a month now. So maybe, you know, and it's a month that for other people was three years.
2: Absolutely.
1: So it's a a bit different for me. I can say that I have had the condensed, accelerated version and she hasn't stuck. Now, for the rest of you, you had seven years and then ten years in between or five, however, I don't know, whatever. So you have a different attachment to Rory than I do. But I will tell you that, you know, the three years to a month time that I've spent with Rory, I'm not interested. I don't even… I'm not even interested to theorize. That said, as a a person who's interested in storytelling, the story has to go to a place where Rory and Lorelai are no longer best friends. It's inevitable. Like the show can't continue with Rory and Lorelai just being trip to Europe because this is coming the backpacking and like, not having any conflict the way that Lorelei and Emily had a f- major falling out. So if I'm going to predict anything, I'm going to predict that once that happens, I may be more interested in Rory when she has extricated herself from Lorelei's
2: cocoon. We'll see. I'm working really hard to keep my face neutral here. <laughs> I will say uh, that, you know, I'm… I'm often unfairly maligned around here. People call me contrary. People imply that I was, I'm was i late. Jasic uh, you know, is very cruel to you. I was perfectly on time today. But I will not argue with the fact that next week uh, and in the intervening times when I have seen what happens and you have not seen, I will wear the label that I will be smug. Uh, about what I know and what you don't know. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I assume all of you are as well.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of the first episode of our podcast, which we still don't have a confirmed confirmed
2: name for. Please send us your suggestions. We have some ideas about, you know, the work and how, how it makes you twist yourself up and, and what it can be about. We do have some ideas… We want to share them with you, but we want
1: to hear yours first. So please email us. Let us know. Hit us up. What do you what do you always say? Do things on iTunes? Um, first of all, leave comments on iTunes. Yell. Google Play, email, tweet at us, um, and subscribe. Most importantly. Yeah, do that. Thanks for listening. Bye.